There's a great new singer here tonight, the busboy. <laughs> no, 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 on the level. A very good friend of Mr. Fields says this guy can really go. Raining from Rushmore. I'm your host, Austin Mills, and today we've got ourselves a fiery furnace of fame that changed America forever. Yep, we're talking about the one and only Elvis Presley. And for our studious listeners out there, today's history is found in Scroll VI, chapters 7 through 11 of American History. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble... No one knows how the argument started, but needless to say, it had escalated to Cardi B, Nicki Minaj-like proportions. Marilyn Monroe, goddess of desire. Benjamin Franklin, god of writ. William Howard Taft, god of the feast. And Stevie Wonder, god of performance were knee-deep in a violent argument of jealousy concerning who was the choicest god of them all. Each had a very valid argument. Wonder and his 40 songs on the Billboard Top 100, Monroe and her laundry list of past boy toys, just friends, Franklin and his healthy face on the $100 bill, and Taft, well, Taft was a nice guy. They would have asked the mirror on the wall had Marilyn not broken it when she noticed a slight weight gain. And so they were left to the powers of rhetoric. They argued and argued, but to no avail. After reaching terminal exhaustion, they realized there was only one way to settle this. They would ask a mortal. So they put up a map and blindfolded Monroe. She insisted they spin her first, so they did though she seemed to enjoy it just a little too much. She hurled the dart through the air, though in the wrong direction. Marilyn didn't know her strength, and the dart soared out of Mount Rushmore. Franklin, Wonder, and Taft watched intensely as the dart continued east, slowly descending to the earth. The dart entered the Manchester Township in New Jersey, where the Hindenburg was about to end its tour of the American Northeast. The dart penetrated the airship, which suddenly was engulfed in flames. The gods could not believe what they were seeing. Meanwhile, a beaming, ignorant Monroe, still blindfolded, yelled out, My goodness, boys, where'd it land? Where's our destination? The Bahamas? Franklin shook off the flabbergast, let out a celebratory cheer, and pulled out an extra dart from his pocket and stabbed it into Memphis, Tennessee. Marilyn took off her blindfold to behold what a great job she'd done. Her pride was only trumped by her ignorance. The four descended to Memphis to behold the streets riddled with people. Yet, to their dismay, 
they couldn't understand a single word. The clod hopping, granny slapping, hotter than a goat's butt in a pepper patch, Tennessee folks said due to their thick country accent. The air was deathly still, and the humidity dropped off of their bodies. Marilyn soon got antsy. She had a strictly professional meeting with John F. Kennedy at 7 that she could not miss for matters of national import. The gods sedated her with some positive compliments about her figure, and she quickly returned to the work at hand. Hours passed when finally a young boy by the name of Elvis Aaron Presley came perusing through the square, whistling a little ditty to himself. The gods approached the boy, explained the situation, and asked him who was the greatest god of them all, when suddenly Marilyn jumped the gun and said, You know, big boy, I grew up in a place just like this, and guess what? If you choose me, no matter what room you walk into, it will magically be filled with large posters of me. The young boy, salivating, swallowed loudly and began sweating profusely at the thought. Franklin came out and said, If you think it wisest to choose me with your election so true, then I shall make you undoubtedly the wisest lad in all of these United States. Tat followed with, If you pick me, young boy, I will ensure you never go hungry again, and I'll do you one better. I promise you'll never get stuck in a tub, ever. The young boy was slightly disturbed by that. The last thing he wanted was that old man seeing him naked in a tub. Wonder finished last, saying, You know what, kid? Pick me and uh, I'll make you the greatest performer this country ever did know. Little did these gods know, it was Elvis's dream to be a professional musician, and without a second thought, picked Wonder. Taft boiled over in anger. He flung his arms into the air and called down a massive, white, porcelain tub from the heavens. It quickly covered Taft and Presley, isolating them from the others. Taft exclaimed, For not choosing me, I set upon thee a curse. If thou ever use a jumpsuit, food shall be thy downfall, and you will die a kingly Horrid death. Before Presley could say a word, the tub was gone, and so were the gods. The next day, July 5th, 1954, Presley received a call from his distant uncle's cousin's friend, Sam Phillips, a record producer, to come on down to Sun Records and record a little something. He went in to record what would become his first big hit, That's All Right. His music caught fire like the unfortunate Hindenburg, and thanks to the influence of Stevie Wonder, he brought the beauties of African-American music to a wider audience. Over the years, Elvis became an incredible symbol of rock and roll, rockabilly, excessive gel use, 
promiscuity thanks to one-on-one lessons from Marilyn Monroe, who is now a huge fan, and even cinema. And thus the saying, can anything good come out of Memphis, was put to rest. Over the few years that passed, Elvis would make 18 number ones and 38 top 10 hits, making him the best-selling solo artist in the history of recorded music. He won three Grammys, the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, and was introduced into multiple music halls of fame. But as the years went on and his love of fame engulfed him, his memory of William Howard Taft's curse began to wane. But what did that matter? He was king. After reading an article in the Rushmore Gazette describing Elvis's unbelievable successes, William Howard Taft in his chamber, sat in the dark with nothing on but his long johns. In his hand, an empty bottle of Pendleton whiskey. He flicked on a flickering candle and stared angrily at the picture of his father resting on the coffee table. He thought of how funny his father must think this all is. His son, all grown up, a failure of a god. That stupid John Deere and his stupid tractor. Nobody was hungry anymore. Nobody needed him to feast anymore. And that stupid Lululemon culture with their take care of your body, bullarchy. Taft was nothing more than a marginalized god, forgotten. It was only a matter of time before he would be forced into the asylum at Area 51 to join Emily Post goddess of etiquette and the other prohibitionist, modernist, hippies, goths, and tea party politicians. He reached down to the crate of whiskey bottles under his desk to dejectively discover them all empty. He stumbled onto his feet and took a few steps, at which point his knees gave out and he fell to the floor, his face smashing into a misplaced chamber pot. He kept his eyes closed for a hot minute. After extracting his face, He opened his eyes to see, there on the ground, tucked under his bed, an old poster. He pulled it out, dusted it off, and read, Diners, drive-ins, and dives with Guy Fieri. An idea rushed to him, a brilliant idea, an idea so sinister, so demented, so perverse, it would force all the other gods to finally respect him. Remembering the curse he set upon Elvis, he would send the eccentric Fieri down to Elvis, who would befriend him, convince him to wear jumpsuits on his tours, and take him to every drive-in and dive on this side of the cussing hemisphere, until Elvis was so overweight and so unhealthy, his curse would finally come true. The next morning, January 12th, 1970, Elvis was awoken by the sound of a fanfare. He stepped out of bed with a few ha-ha-haws. Opening his front door, he walked out to discover his walkway lined with trumpeters, all wearing black, fiery crocs, with spiked, silvery hair, and a goatee. At the end of the human corridor stood a man leaning against a red convertible. His crocs blazed fiercely. His hair shot up into the sky, the 25-carat silver blindingly reflecting in the sun. 
Silver earrings adorned his ears. A flaming button-down shirt caressed his torso. And black made-in-China sunglasses covered his eyes. My name is Geistrus Archibald Furilicious, but my friends call me Guy. I'm the god of the future, and guess what, you washed-up honky-tonk? The future is now. Elvis threw himself down at his feet, exclaiming his unworthiness. Guy picked him up, dusted him off, and said, Listen up, you brown town corn shucking hus puppy. I'ma teach you how to live, but only if you promise to do exactly as I say. Elvis seizured on the ground due to Guy's prolonged presence, but he managed a distinguishable yes, sir. Guy pulled a large white jumpsuit out of his convertible. First off, we gotta get you out of those disgusting rags. Go put this on. Go on. Elvis ran into his bathroom as giddy as a schoolgirl. He put the jumpsuit on and was in awe at its majesty. It was resplandescent white with shiny tassels on it and a massive dragon coiled around his body. It combined style, comfort, and pizzazz all in one. When Guy saw him, he knew it was perfect. He looked him up and down, unzipped it down to the belly button, telling him, that's what the girls like, and gave him a pair of rocker sunglasses, calling them the perfect mix between aviators and steampunk, the only two styles worth knowing. For the following two weeks, Guy and Elvis did nothing but get haircuts and eat food off of the I-15. By the time January 26th rolled around, Elvis was hip and ready for another year of performance. His new look thrilled the blind audience members as they hooped and hollered at his musical greatness. The years rolled on, and soon there was a truck stop in these United States that didn't know the good old boys Guy and Elvis by name. However, by 1977, Elvis was, as guitarist John Wilkinson puts it, all gut, and constantly reeked of vegetable oil. He was slurring. It was obvious he was drugged. It was obvious there was something terribly wrong with his body. It was so bad the words to the songs were barely intelligible. I remember crying. He could barely get through the introductions. One night I watched him in his dressing room, just draped over a chair, unable to move. All the bandmates and journalists said it was drugs, but deep down within, Elvis, he knew it was food. He had finally remembered that moment back in Memphis where the curse was set upon him. His carelessness had sealed his fate. Food was eating him from the inside out. Unfortunately, he knew it was too late. It was on August 16, 1977. Elvis was eating his classic peanut butter, banana, and bacon sandwich when suddenly he could no longer breathe. Seven years of peanut butter had built up inside of him and his body couldn't take any more. He ran to the bathroom to attempt an emergency evacuation, but he couldn't get his jumpsuit off. He hadn't taken it off in seven years since getting it from Guy, and it was stuck to his skin. He tried and tried. He even tried with his pants on, but it was no use. The king died on the throne.
back atop Mount Rushmore, the gods sobbed and sobbed over the loss of such talent. Guy Fieri and William Howard Taft were never even considered for having a hand in the scheme. Finally, Taft, in search of admiration, admitted to the gods that he had orchestrated Presley's death, though it was not praise that he received. All the gods and goddesses rose in anger, ready to tear him limb from limb for what he'd done. Stevie Wonder was particularly triggered, seeing Elvis was his golden boy. You no good, worthless scum! You'll pay for this! Jackson! Samuel L. Jackson walked up next to Wonder with evil in his eyes. Jackson, this fiend need to be dealt with. An insidious grin expanded across Jackson's face. From then and for all eternity, Taft was sentenced to live in a tub filled with lukewarm water. There only a foot away from the tub is a towel. Yet every time Taft goes to reach for it, the towel remains just out of reach. There you have the inspiring yet tragic true story of Elvis Presley. Though he did change music forever, he was simply too stubborn to change his diet. But if there's anything to be learned from this tale, ladies and gentlemen, it's don't ever take advice from Guy Fieri. Get a hand.